very welcome to, to everyone to Gosman the City this, this lunchtime. Um, it, it's great to be able to take uh, a bit of time out of, out of a busy week and, and meet together and, and think uh, about what, what God, God's word to us says for the, the week ahead and, uh, and what we're doing in our day-to-day lives. Um, we're, we're continuing uh, today our series um, in Second Peter, uh, Bringing Heaven to Earth, and we're delighted to have uh, David back with us uh, for this week as well. Um, I, I'll do a few few notices at the end, but just to flag up in case you have to head off early, um, this is the, there'll be one more week after this, and then we'll have a break over the summer. And and the way to kind of keep in touch with when we're getting back and everything's to get yourself onto the mailing list. Um, I'll mention it again at the end, uh, just in case anyone has to head off though. Um, let me read for us um, the the passage. We're looking at the whole of Second Peter today. Um, but just in the interest of time, I'm going to read the first 10 verses and then the, the picking up again at, at verse 17 through to the end. Um, so Second Peter, uh, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the, the people, just as there would be false teachers among you. Who, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into the hell, in, into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And now I'll jump down to verse 17, so the last paragraph there on the handout. Um, these are our waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who were barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they've escaped the defilements, of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Um, let me just pray for us, um, and then I'll hand over to David. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you um, 
that we have the the opportunity to take uh, this this half hour or so out in the in the middle of a working week to to join together to um, encourage each other and to uh, think about what your word means for for us living uh, in our workplaces and in our day-to-day lives um, we pray that you will be with David now that you will speak your words through him and that you will be at work uh, in us to help us to understand um, what what this passage means and what it's saying for us today we pray all of this in Jesus name amen I thought I wasn't going to be wired up there and I could say absolutely anything because it wouldn't be recorded. Oh well, it was a nice thought. Well, it's a pleasure to be back uh, with you today and to be wrestling with 2 Peter again. We've got a whole chapter, so you'll appreciate we're not going to deal with absolutely everything in it. Uh, We'll have to be selective, but I hope uh, it'll be useful Nonetheless, last week you were looking at the second part of chapter 1. Peter concerned to keep reminding uh, his readers about the basics of Christian doctrine. Uh, These are the foundations, and Peter knows very well, of course, if the foundations are unsound, then the building inevitably uh, is going to cause problems. Uh, Maybe you'll have found that, of course, in everyday life as well. If you've got dodgy foundations, you're going to have problems, but spiritually speaking... Uh, If the foundations aren't well laid, there are going to be problems. And Peter knows that, uh, so he's not troubled by repeating things that he knows his readers uh, have already heard. And of course, preachers are doing that all the time. Uh, And usually for a preacher, if you come up with a brand new idea, (coughs) you hear alarm bells because you think, why did nobody think of this before? Uh, And the answer might well be because it's nonsense. So (laughs) we, we don't value originality too high. Uh, in preaching. But Peter also, of course, is stressing that our Christian faith is built on historical events. History matters to the Christian in a way it doesn't matter to other religions. If certain things didn't happen, then there is no Christian faith. It's not that we just tweak it a little bit and change it here and there. The whole thing simply collapses. It's built on history. Uh, And it's interesting, even in chapter 2, he'll be mentioning uh, a couple of characters uh, from Old Testament history uh, that some of the scholars, of course, would just write off. They never existed or we don't know about them. And Peter's saying these are important. Uh, they're important to our faith uh, and they matter to us. Uh, and he ended just at the uh, very end of chapter 1. We picked up the last uh, few words of chapter 1 that uh, what we have in our hands uh, is not merely human words. It is human words, of course, uh, but it's a trustworthy record inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Men spoke from God as they were carried along. That's the word for picking up and carrying something. It's quite a a graphic way of describing uh, the, the inspiration of Scripture. The Spirit picks them up and takes them exactly where He wants them to go. But into chapter 2, and we're thinking today of don't slip backwards. The big uh, theme of bringing heaven to earth, don't slip backwards. Uh, And the first thing that Peter deals with uh, here, as you can see the the headings from the handout, uh, the rise of false teachers. The rise of false teachers. Because having just spoken about uh, 
men uh, spoke from God, but false prophets. This is the, the other side of the equation. Praise God, there are men who speak from God, but there's also the reality of uh, the false prophets. Uh, and we can look back in the history uh, of God's people and back in the history of the church uh, and right up to the present day, and we know the reality of what Peter says. False prophets have arisen, are arising. And that's characteristic of every period of the history of the church. There, there's no uh, period you can look to and think, well, that was pure and there were no problems with false doctrine. There's no golden age, despite what some might seem to think of Calvin's Geneva or the Puritans or whoever it may be. There's no golden age when everything was untroubled and smooth. Always there have been false doctrines, false teachers functioning. Uh, and that's the way the devil works, of course. He's not original. Uh, he uses the same techniques again and again, often, of course, because they worked. Uh, and in Peter's day, this was the case. All through church history, it's been the case. Uh, and it's the same today. Uh, the precise false teaching might change, but essentially it's the same operation that's underway. Uh, and Peter was very conscious of that. Remember, here is right back in the earliest days of the church, the apostles, some of them still alive, uh, and Satan's working, trying to disrupt, to confuse, and to lead people astray. So it's no surprise uh, to us, or it shouldn't be a surprise when we find false teaching still troubling the church, false teachers still uh, operating. Uh, and Peter knew uh, all about that. And of course, the important thing is, as he says there, uh, that uh, false teachers uh, are rising among you. Just to remind us, it's within the church. Uh, false teaching isn't simply out there at a safe distance. But the devil wants to get in, get into the church, uh, and to disrupt uh, and to peddle his wares among God's people. Uh, and as a reminder, of course, we've always got to be watchful. Uh, we've always got to be on our guard. Uh, you know, across people sometimes, in all sincerity, he will say, well, in our church, they're all Christians. You may have heard it. I've heard it. Uh, and my first reaction, well, to myself, maybe not to them, is, oh, is that the case? You think so? Because always the enemy's getting in, uh, and he wants to try and uh, lead God's people astray. And so we make no assumptions. It's one reason why uh, any faithful preacher, when he's confronted with a congregation where he thinks perhaps all are converted, will never assume that, uh, and won't have any compunction in calling people uh, to repent. Uh, I can remember when I was a student, uh, we would preach for our college committee. Uh, and in my day, you just had an empty church building and about a dozen ministers sitting there. It wasn't very natural, but we did that. But the, the, there were those uh, students, who maybe with a certain relish, uh, would exhort the professors and the ministers to repent uh, and to trust in the Lord. And I think, oh, well, that was so, but who knows? Who knows? And we must always remember uh, that... The enemy likes to work and seeks to work within uh, the church of Jesus Christ. Constant watchfulness uh, is needed. We make no assumptions. 
The precise danger uh, that Peter highlights here is one that keeps coming back uh, and in a sense is always troubling the church. He says they are denying the master who bought them. Now I think he's simply describing them according to their profession to be Christians. They are claiming uh, to belong to Christ. They are claiming that Christ has bought them. Uh, I don't think Peter is saying, yes, they were saved, uh, but nevertheless, somehow they've lost it along the way or they've become apostate, whatever. Uh, I think he's simply describing them as they describe themselves. They claim uh, to belong uh, to the Lord. How are they denying the master who bought them? It's a good question. sort of thing would occupy scholars and keep academics in a job, you know, writing about these things. But it certainly is, is something to do with the work of Christ uh, and perhaps denying the power of the atonement, uh, even maybe denying the, the necessity for the atonement. It, it could be uh, something like that. Uh, but it does remind us that so often the attacks uh, that the enemy brings against the church relate to the person and work of Christ. Uh, often there's error about all sorts of other issues, but it's that core uh, that, that is constantly under attack. Who is Christ? What has he done to save sinners? And you could understand why that particularly is the focus of Satan's attacks and why he'll stir up false teachers in this area. Uh, there are some doctrines, and we might differ over them, uh, and there are some things that we might be wrong about. It's just conceivable I might be wrong about one or two things. I don't think so, but I might be. But if we are wrong about the heart of who is Christ and what has he done to save sinners, then we've lost the whole thing. Uh, there is no scope for, well, you think one thing and I think another and I think Jesus is truly God. You don't, but that's okay. We can live with each other. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what it's all about. Uh, and of course, that's why Satan attacks this point. Because if he can undermine accurate biblical belief in the person of Christ and the work of Christ, then the church is crumbling. Uh, and so this is an area where all through the history of the church, uh, Satan's been working to try and corrupt uh, the core of the gospel. Uh, and it's the area, of course, above all, where we need to be clear and understand these basics. Sometimes Christians think, well, look, you know, the cults come to my door. I'm talking to people with other ideas, and there's so many uh, different issues, and I can't be up on all of them, and I, I don't understand all of them. But here's one area where any Christian can be and should be clear and know what the Bible says. Who's Jesus? What's he done to save sinners? Maybe other issues you're not too sure about, but confused. But here's something that you can know well. And so when the cults come to my door, they don't come as often maybe as they used to. I don't know why that is. But they'll come with different issues and they want to talk about this and they want to talk about that. And always, simply I say to them, well, let's talk about Jesus. And your Jesus can't save anybody. And this is what the Bible says. And they'll try and go off on a tangent and get you off on other subjects and keep bringing them back because this is the one thing any Christian should know and be clear on. What's the Bible say about the person of Christ and the work of Christ? And that is, of course, always under attack and we need to be well armed. Uh, and it's, it's not too difficult for any of us 
to know what the Bible says and to be clear on it. Interesting too that Peter makes a connection here you often find in the New Testament uh, between false teaching and ungodly living. And you read the New Testament and read the letters, notice how often that connection is made. False teaching and ungodly living. And that shouldn't surprise us because of course uh, what we believe shapes how we live. Uh, And if we're believing error, don't be surprised if that does lead to ungodly living, to sinful uh, patterns of behavior. Uh, And Peter highlights that as well. The the description he gives is powerful. uh, And he spells it out, eyes full of adultery, verse 14, insatiable for sin, hearts trained in greed. And maybe those two particularly stand out, sexual sin and carelessness uh, and materialism and greed. Uh, And how often those characterize the false teachers. The New Testament makes the point again and again. We see it in church history. We can see it around us. There's a profound connection uh, between false teaching and ungodly living. And indeed, maybe uh, that's one of the alarm bells at times we could hear ringing. Uh, If we see uh, an ungodly lifestyle, it should warn us. What does this person believe? Uh, And that may provide a protection uh, if we're alert to these connections. How does somebody live? And that will show us significant things about what they believe. And clearly Peter's offering it uh, as a test, signs uh, of false teaching. The first may be not in complicated theology, but actually how do they live? Uh, What patterns of conduct do you see in them? Uh, And that may start to ring the bells of warning. Uh, and make you ask deeper questions. Where does this person stand? What do they believe? What sorts of things will they be teaching? And the two are connected. Uh, And the New Testament uh, often highlights uh, that connection between the two. I'm not saying that because your theology is very orthodox, it guarantees a godly life. We know too many exceptions. But nevertheless, ungodly living is often a strong indicator uh, of false belief and false teaching, uh, and we need to be alert uh, to that. But there's consolation as well uh, in all of this. Sometimes Christians can panic the latest false teaching that comes along, uh, and I'm old enough to, to remember uh, various panics among Christians. Uh, false teaching that almost seems to threaten the end of the church. The church will be swept away by this, and eventually you think, Give it a while, and it'll pass, uh, and it'll become just a memory. Because why? Because in the end, God's in control of all of this. Uh, none of this is outside God's control, and Peter uh, understands that. And that's why uh, he makes the point that in the past, God didn't spare angels. God has judged. God has dealt with error and ungodliness, and he'll do it again. It doesn't mean we're complacent about false teaching, but we always got to remember God's in control. It'll not destroy his church. In a sense, this too will pass. You know, we maybe say that about various things in life. But it's true of false teaching. It's not out of God's control. uh, And that gives us an element of peace, even when there is a battle 
uh, even when we do have to fight for the truth. It's not out of God's control. Uh, and there will be judgment. God's judged in the past. God will judge again. God judged angels. And God will judge false teachers. And that gives us an element of uh, peace in the midst of all of this. So there's the rise of false teachers. I want to think a little now about the danger of slipping. Um, this isn't just uh, an intellectual exercise or even a history lesson. There's a, a point for God's people in Peter's day and for us as well. Why does Peter address these warnings to the church? It's because he knows there's a threat. He knows there's a danger. And he sees the threat. Many will follow their sensuality, he says in verse 2. It does pose a danger, both the false teaching and the ungodly living that goes along with it. It can attract people. Uh, and, of course, most dangers to those uh, that we might describe as spiritually immature, who are not well armoured and ready to defend themselves uh, as we might want them to be. Uh, and he speaks of that. Those, he says in verse 18, who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Our first thought would be new Christians. And that's certainly uh, one of the, the, the groups of people that we need uh, to be especially protective of. They're new to the faith, a lot of things they don't understand, a good deal to learn. And of course, that's why uh, as churches, we want to be very uh, diligent in discipling new Christians. They're, they're vulnerable. Uh, and given some of the backgrounds they may come out of, they may be particularly vulnerable. But I think it's not only new Christians, uh, because there are some who perhaps have been believers for a long time. And yet it seems they haven't really grown in their faith. They haven't really developed a mature faith. They're still, uh, they're still children, they're still babies in New Testament language, spiritually speaking. Uh, and sometimes it can surprise us uh, how little some folk who maybe have been converted for years uh, have actually understood uh, of biblical truth. They haven't really got rooted in it. Uh, they haven't really put effort into understanding it. And they are vulnerable uh, as well. Uh, and those particularly, I think, are the kind of people that P Peter has in view uh, who are really just escaping uh, from falsehood, from, uh, from error. Because we need to keep in mind error can be deceptive. The devil doesn't come often in obvious ways. Uh, he's the counterfeiter. Uh, and you know, it's only the, uh, the Irish counterfeiter who produces six-pound notes. He wants it to be as like the real thing as possible. Uh, and Satan will operate in that way. It's not in great big obvious ways and you think, I could see him coming. It'll be in more subtle ways. It'll maybe be using the language we are familiar with. Uh, words that we know and we think we're talking the same language as this person. That often happens with the cults, of course. You think they're speaking our language, they use our words, but then you start to look at it and you think, actually, they're not. They mean something different by those words. Uh, and so error is deceptive. It can draw people away. But error, false teaching, just does not deliver what it promises. Again, Peter uses striking uh, pictures, waterless springs. You imagine going through the deserts, verse 17, 
and you think you can see the oasis, there's going to be water, and you get there and it's dry. That's what false teaching's like. You think it's going to deliver, and it's dry, and it leaves you dry. Or the mists driven by a storm, they're just blown away. They've no substance, uh, there's nothing of value there. That's how Peter describes them. Uh, and false teaching can't satisfy your soul. It might seem to for a while, uh, but it really won't. Actually, what it does, Peter says, is it enslaves. It makes you a prisoner. Uh, and we see people sometimes getting wrapped up in false teaching, uh, and it gets a real grip on them. Uh, and only God's grace can release them. Slaves. Uh, and they... The ironical thing, almost in a sense that the comical thing about false teachers is simply this. Here they are promising people freedom. And as they do it, they're rattling their chains. It's slaves telling slaves, I can make you free. You think, what a lot of nonsense. That's really what it is. Uh, false teaching can't deliver anybody. And it cannot give what it promises. It's slaves telling slaves, I know how to be free. You think, well, if you do, why are you still a slave? And that's the picture Peter gives us. False teachers are imprisoned. They're slaves at themselves, and yet they're promising to make other people free. Here's the doctrine you need. It'll set you free. And the false teacher himself is in chains. And he's held fast. He can't free anybody. Uh, it's interesting, just the end of the chapter, we don't really have time uh, to look at it, but the warning Peter gives there in verse 20 uh, about somebody who has experienced a, an escape from false teaching. He's not saying they're converted necessarily, but they've escaped and then they go back uh, and they're worse off uh, than they were in the first place. Graphic pictures of the, uh, the pig going back to wallow in the mire, the dog going back to its vomit, uh, to have almost got away and go back uh, is a serious thing, leaves you far worse uh, than you were in the first place. But okay, we've talked enough about false teachers uh, and enough about the dangers. Let's think finally about the power of God, because the focus of Peter isn't actually on false teachers, and our focus shouldn't be on false teachers. Uh, and there's a danger sometimes we can become obsessed uh, with error and the power of error and the danger that it poses. And I'm not saying we, we, we shouldn't pay proper attention to the threats to the church, but our focus needs to be in the right place. It needs to be on the right person, and that's on God. And that's the great, of course, uh, protection from false teaching. And from the kind of dangers we're describing, keep our focus on God and on God's power. Don't slip backwards is our theme. And if we're not to slip backwards, we need the strength of the Lord. We need to be drawing on God's power. Uh, it's always dangerous when we think, I'm strong enough. I know enough. No, I'm in a good church, good background, read Christian books. I'm okay. Uh, and Paul, I'm sure, would say to all of us, let him or her who thinks he's standing take heed lest he fall. So let's be aware of thinking, couldn't happen to me, or couldn't happen to my church for that matter. Keep our focus on God. And there's the good news 
that we need in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Amen. The Lord knows how to rescue. He's able to rescue and he's willing to rescue. But those are the words that are full of hope. Lest we become preoccupied with error and the dangers it poses. Never forget, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. He's able to do it. Our hope is in the power of God's grace, not in us. It's always in the Lord. And this is the Lord who, according to 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord who knows those who are his. Uh, and the Lord knows his people. Uh, and he knows the false teachers. Uh, and he's not confused. And he's not deceived. And he makes no mistakes. And he's able to deliver the godly. And Peter gives us a couple of examples. Always useful to have concrete examples. That helps us. Uh, and as preachers, we're always trying to think of examples and illustrations. And usually the best uh, actually come from Scripture itself. Uh, and that's exactly what Peter does here. Two examples uh, to encourage us. Uh, first of all, verse 5. God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Faithful man uh, endured mockery. Now here's Noah, miles from the sea, building a boat. Year after year, you can imagine some of what the community was saying about Noah. Uh, poor fella, he's, he's lost it, he needs counselling or something. And yet he was a faithful man, a herald of righteousness. He preached despite the, the mockery and everything else. And the Lord was able to preserve him. That's okay, Noah we can think of. But then the other one, verse 7. Righteous Lot. Now, if you had one of those you know, word quizzes or something and you were given one word and you had to complete it. Righteous. I wonder how many would have put in Lot. I don't think anybody would have actually, probably unless you knew, of course, 2 Peter 2 and you were ready with that. Righteous Lot. He doesn't jump out to us as an example of righteousness. Think of Lot. What do you think of Lot? Lot. Compromised, Lot and Sodom, uh, Lot escaping from uh, judgment by the skin of his teeth, uh, Lot and his daughters, we needn't go there. Righteous Lot. And yet Peter highlights him here. Surprising choice, compromised, weak, shouldn't have been there in the first place, and yet. God didn't abandon Lot, even in Sodom. It wasn't an excuse for him being there, but God didn't abandon him. And God still held on uh, to Lot, and he was still righteous by God's grace, despite the weakness, despite the compromise, despite everything else about Lot. And surely that is a comfort to us. We have time for discussion just briefly at the end. And just to think, how can those examples Help us, Noah and Lot. Can we take comfort from Lot in some ways without becoming careless or complacent? We know our weaknesses. We know our failures. Nobody, I'm sure, needs to tell you where you've compromised, where you've failed, where you haven't been what you should have been, where you haven't stood 
when you should have stood. And yet, righteous lot, angers tremendous encouragement in that. The focus is on God. Don't slip backwards. The only way we will not slip backwards, either in our belief or in our practice, is if we are close to the Lord and we're drawing on his strength. And the pressures are on in work or in your family or whatever situation. You need to be drawing on God's strength. And he is able to deliver. He could deliver Noah from all the mockery and everything he had to take. He's able to deliver righteous lot. That's striking. I think that's worth thinking about. And by God's grace and God's power, we'll not slip back. Let's just pray for a moment and maybe a few minutes just to think about the discussion. Father, we rejoice in your power. We thank you you're able to deliver your people in every situation. Lord, we know the dangers of false teaching. Keep us alert. Keep us rooted in your word and your precious truth. Give us discernment to see the enemy at work. And Lord, we pray that we might not be those who slip back. May we be able to stand fast and to help others to stand fast for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.